Welcome to Good Morning, the podcast on a mission to open up the conversation around grief and loss with honesty and humour. Hosted by Sally and Imogen, we interview interesting guests to hear how losses shape their lives. Join us as we laugh, cry and drop the odd F-bomb. Welcome back to the Good Morning Podcast and to the first episode of 2022. We have missed you guys. Good to be back in your ear holes. It feels like it's been a long time, but we are back with a bang. We've got the most amazing season planned for you. We've listened to all of your requests of who you'd like us to get on the pod. And I'm telling you, we've got majority on and it's going to be so exciting. So exciting. Back with a bloody bang. Um, Back with a bang. Back (laughs) with a bloody bang. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, hope you're all doing okay and that the year is being gentle on you all. It's absolutely a thing, isn't it, Im? New Year grief. Yeah, it's a funny, funny old thing, New Year grief, but I don't think it's really acknowledged. No, I don't think so. But I Mm. hope you guys are all doing okay. And if you've had a few griefy spells, at the start of this like, year, like, like us. <laughs> <laughs> then, I think I'm on two this week already. And yeah, yeah. Love a grief bomb. The grief bombs are hitting hitting left, right and centre, mate. They are. Had one in the car today. That was good. <laughs> well, while driving? No, 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 no. I was in the car park. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, yeah. It just still hits. And that's the thing, you know, coming into two years and they're still hitting, not as frequently, but they still hit with the same intensity. So if anyone else is experiencing that lately, know that you're not alone. I think it's, you know, new year, it's a massive time for reflection, isn't it? And as we enter like, you know, another year without our people or our person, like it just, it it can bring on like a bit of a wave of grief. So guys, if you're like him and having a few grief bombs, (laughs) really hope that you guys are taking it easy on yourself and that you guys are okay. On to today's guest, because I can't wait a second longer to talk about her. (laughs) Um, Julia Samuel is joining us today in conversation, and quite a few of you may already be familiar with her. In fact, I know when we announced that she was coming on the pod, quite a few people reached out and said, oh my God, the queen of grief, which I know she's going to hate us for saying that. She absolutely (laughs) will hate us for saying that. (laughs) (laughs) But she is one of the UK's leading psychotherapists. She's a grief expert author of multiple books that are bestsellers and also the creator of the Griefworks app. I mean, what can't she do? Literally, what can't she do? But we really got to pick her brains in this conversation about some of the really big griefy topics. And what I really loved about this chat is I think there's wisdom for everyone in this conversation, like no matter where you're at in your grief. Julia is such a fountain of knowledge and she shares so many insights that I think will help so many of you so I'm really really excited for you all to listen to this one it's a real game-changing chat this one um she's just a grief changer really but I particularly I love loved- that <laughs> she's, a, she's a grief changer I, I particularly loved her description though Sal of like her explaining to us that there's a death story and but there's also a life story and how it's so important to like shift your focus from the death to their life and all of the wonderful memories and everything that they lived. And I think that's something that I'm definitely in the depths of processing and working through at the moment, but yeah, on a whole, like this whole conversation was so insightful. And like Sal said, there's something for everyone in it. We discussed living losses, 
grief on all forms, complicated grief, the kind of mixed emotions that can come with grief and how to work through it. And yeah, it's just really, really good chat. And guys, before we jump in, if you enjoy this podcast, we would love it if you have a moment just to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd be so grateful as it really does help the pod get seen by others who might enjoy it. Give us a cheeky five stars. Go on. (laughs) And also don't forget to subscribe as well. So if you, um, yeah, you don't miss out on any of our amazing guests that we have coming up, if you just hit subscribe and yeah, let's get on with the show. Here's Julia Samuel guys. Enjoy. It's really nice to connect with you finally. We've been looking forward to this all week. So oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> and I can only disappoint. <laughs> you do have a lot of fans here in Australia. A lot of our Australian listeners were really excited when they um, heard you were going to come on the podcast. And quite a lot of them, I think, uh, listened to Carrie Ad Lloyd's podcast, obviously, podcast. Uh, so they were all saying, Oh, you're getting St. Julia on the podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Bloody Cariad, honestly. Oh, I think it's a very fitting name. Yeah. yeah. So is not. You don't know me, honestly. (laughs) Couldn't be further from the truth. Um, Julia, I don't know if you've had a chance to ever listen to our intro, um, but we have a good laugh and a cry and we drop the old F-bomb on this podcast. So feel free. We know you have a wicked sense of humour. So feel free to let loose. <laughs> um, but yeah, we've been so looking forward to speaking with you and we absolutely love your books and we love your app, Griefworks. And we know uh, many of our listeners have found it really helpful as well. Um, so yeah, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Well, I'm delighted um, to join you and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. There is so much that we want to ask you, St. Julia. Um, (laughs) I promise that's the last time, first and last time, I promise. Um, But we would really like to start by talking about your recent work around living losses, and then we'll get into some more griefy questions, if that's okay. A big message in your latest book, This Too Shall Pass, is accepting that life is a change that we can't control. And even though we know it's inevitable, that can still be really bloody hard. So how can we be better at learning to flow with the challenges and changes that life presents us? Um, So when you say living losses as opposed to grief stuff, I suppose in a way, the definition of a living loss is that it feels like grief, but often isn't legitimized as grief, but it has all of the feelings, emotions, thoughts of grief, but it's for moving house or losing a job or breaking up with a boyfriend or living through a global pandemic or all the different things. So it is very much a loss. Mm. Um, And of course, every kind of, as as I said in this Tusha Pass, life is change. And so there are kind of mini kind of minor losses that we have at the end of every day you know this day is past the new day is going to begin and seasons and phases and stages of our life and I think the the kind of first step in it is not to think that you can will control over things that you have to kind of let yourself you know, have the serenity prayer to accept the things that you cannot change, change the things you can, and crucially to have the wisdom to know the difference. 
so that if you try and do battle with a change that's happened that that you um are powerless you will just shrink because your your kind of your anger and your determination not to be changed by the change means that you get very stuck within yourself and your emotional bandwidth is limited so when we allow ourselves to feel all the sadness and anger and the swearing and the stomping so but find ways of expressing it it also frees us at the other end of the kind of emotional spectrum to feel joy and wonder and happiness and laughter but when we kind of shut down with that kind of grim determination, this is not going to change me. I am not going to let it. <laughs> you, you, you block yourself and then you block your capacity to engage with yourself and then with life. And that, that really um, has a huge outcome on your, on your capacity to um, live and love and, and engage with life. It's so true. When you're in that place, it's so hard to see anything good in your life. I know I've definitely been in that place and so is Sal. You, you lose special moments and you, you can't see the joy and you can't find hope. And I know in your book you say that hope is a key factor in how we manage change as well, which I think is so, so spot on. I think, yeah, the, you know, in a way, what you're describing is like weather. You know, when you're really cold, you can never believe it's going to be hot. Mm. Um, or, you know, all those different kind of internal weathers. You can't see that there's a different season. But if you have even the tiniest flicker of hope that you can picture that in the future, you will have an emotional summer, if you like. Mm. That is the alchemy that turns your life around. Because hope isn't just a feeling. I mean, the feeling helps. But it's a um, plan, a plan A, a plan B, and how to get there, and the belief that you can make it happen. So a lot of the kind of battles with change is, in some ways, is supporting yourself to recognize that you do have this capacity to adapt and change and grow through this terrible event that's happened, whatever it is. And, you know, we are neuroplastic extraordinary beings we are wired to change so it's only our behaviors and the messages we give ourselves that stop us so you know evolutionary we we are we're totally adaptive beings and grief living loss and grief is an adaptive process but it's an active process and it's what you do with your actions <laughs> that predicts your outcome and I think it's really interesting that point that you made earlier about if we don't express the anger and the rage, then it's harder for us to then feel the happiness and joy. And I think sometimes when we are going through a loss, whether that's a living loss or whether the loss of someone we love, it can be difficult to express that anger because other people tend to kind of recoil. I mean, anger, you know, Anger is an expression of hurt. It's like, ow, you're hurting me. And it's protective. It, you know, it's if you're under threat, it's to say to the person who's threatening you or the event, go back. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, it's your fight back. Mm. And so, of course, you know, emotions are contagious. So 
anger has a bad rep because it transmits your rage or your anger or whatever level it is into the being of the other person and they experience it as a threat. Mm. But if emotions, you know, verbal isn't the only way of expressing what we feel. You can journal, you can exercise, you can dance, you can plant your garden, but finding ways of expressing what is in cohate and kind of stuck in your system is how we heal but when we block them it's the things that we do to block the pain and the pain is a small word to describe all the kind of panoply of feelings of grief um is the thing that does us harm over time and often actually does families harm through generations so each person it is their kind of it's on them to find a way how they allow themselves to express and experience the pain and paradoxically by experiencing and expressing their pain is how they will heal wow we have just started this conversation already i'm like this is incredible (laughs) i think often anger covers pain Mm. it covers Mm. hurt so it's an expression of hurt and beneath the hurt can can be multiple reasons for hurt so you can have a whole kind of um, jigsaw of different things that are hurting you and Mm. part of the job is trying to kind of pick out each piece of the jigsaw and understand and express what is hurting you in this particular way in that particular way Um, I think some people hold on to anger and they use it as a defense against hurt. Mm -hmm. So people who stay angry all the time, and that's their modus operandi, they're just angry in the world and the world is against them. Yeah, That is a a defense. That's a very different um, way of being angry. But that kind of instinctive response of of anger, I think, is, is... is um is, is a primary response mm, and it's such a normal part of grief as well isn't it it's just I think everyone goes through <laughs> goes through feeling angry at some point or other I know I dip in and out of it quite often <laughs> I mean I think what's really amps up anger can be the circumstances of the loss So, you know, there's a good death and a bad death and there's a good ending and a bad ending in in living losses. And if it's a sudden night of the clear blue sky, kind of traumatic loss or one that you feel somebody else is to blame. And the same with the Lisbon loss, if you think it's someone else is to blame, that kind of anger can really get stuck into your system and you can ruminate, Mm. you know, for years because it's so hard to be able to kind of step back and allow yourself to kind of recognize that, you know, that at some point you have to learn to accommodate that this happened and learn to live with it, even if you could never, and of course will never accept it. Yeah. And that applies, I think you can relate to that, can't you, in with your situation? Yes, it was everything that you described. My mum died by suicide it was very traumatic it was very (laughs) sudden and the circumstances surrounding it like filled me with a lot of anger towards somebody so yes all of that (laughs) there's no wonder I'm feeling very angry yeah very painful but I think you know I'm nearly two years into it and I still ruminate all the time I still you know it's still a constant process um 
it was interesting. A therapist told me once, I said to her, how long am I going to be feeling this way? How long are these thoughts going to be kind of ruminating in my mind? I can't live like this. And she said, oh, well, if it's still happening after six months and, you know, I think you've got complicated grief. And so I just like, I I really wanted to know, because that's kind of stuck with me, but like, is there a timeline for this? There isn't, is there? I mean, there's, there's so many different, there's, it's a very subjective, uniquely your own experience. People argue that um, grief is a, is a diagnosable um, illness. And people like me say it's a natural response to a life event. And then doctors and psychiatrists say it's a, it's a diagnosable kind of illness that can, um, and that, I mean, I would say that grief on multiple levels is lifelong, Mm -hmm. but the intensity of the grief changes. For suicide, of course, you know, the level of the loss is equal to the level of the love. Mm -hmm. And the quality of that loss, the sort of the um, contamination of it by the circumstances and by other people get in the way of your natural healing because they, they do block you because you just go, as you say, and this wheel of what ifs and whys and if onlys, and you can turn that against yourself. You know, grief is often a horrible self-attack and people often turn against themselves. And then they can also at the same time turn against others. And in all of that, that all that does is amp up your powerlessness mm-hmm. and the shame and guilt. And guilt is a burden we put on ourselves, but also it's a, a, a kind of um, uh, a judgment we can put on others. And guilt and shame aren't really adaptive. You know, mm-hmm. so death by suicide is a traumatic event. Trauma isn't adaptive. So... It takes a lot to get those levels of distress and hurt and questions to find a way of getting them through your system um, so that they don't keep being re-triggered and reignited by by sight, sound, touch and smell, which are the triggers for trauma. Mm. Um, And it's really hard work. So I would say, you know, suicide, it would take a long time. I think the other thing, I mean, I'm talking about you personally, so, but, and maybe that's, that's too much. No, I think it's fine. Part of, part of the complexity of it is when you have all of those feelings the guilt, the shame, the fury, the blame, um, some of it keeps your mother close because the pain keeps you close to the person that, that, that's died. Mm. And part of the paradox is if I let myself off the hook, if I let myself have joy and have happiness, will I in some way be abandoning my mum? Or will I in some way be showing her that I don't care or I don't feel bad? And when I work with people in that... <laughs> well. <laughs> Yeah, you've really hit something there. Well, so what I talk about when I work with people in 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 that dilemma, in that kind of um, 
moving in and out of it is that allow yourself to, to not have fixed states. So allow yourself to move, to let your mum go back of your mind so you can be present, enjoy your kids, have fun, dance, enjoy good times, and then move your attention to your mum and give her some time and some focus. Mm -hmm. But do it in the way that you remember her life story and not just her death story. Mm. because the death story can completely overwhelm the life story. And that isn't why she matters to you so much. It isn't the main part of her. The main part of her was all the living that you had together. You're going to make me cry. <laughs> this, is, this is so helpful. And I think for Sal as well, Sal's mum died suddenly too. So, you know, there's, there's just so, so much around their death for us where it's like yeah. it's hard to see past that and it's hard to to remember their life as well but but it's so important because we had you know 30 something years with them which it's never going to be long enough but it is a good significant amount of time and I think it's interesting um what you say there about putting you know the de the death to the back of the mind so you can be present and then thinking about you know, yeah and I wonder if that applies also to grief because, you know, when you are doing podcasts on grief and writing books on grief and, you know, you're sort of in the grief space, what we've been trying to do is have that time off from grief where we're not thinking about our own grief or doing things that relate to grief. And I think <laughs> that is probably a good, the way you just explained it, it's a probably good way, a good way when you're just feeling like it's all consuming. Is it, uh, it's absolutely vital that you do that because if you kind of recognize how we operate as human beings, everything that we put our attention to, that we listen to, what we eat, who we're with, um, what we watch, how we move, how we don't move, who we see affects our mood mm. and affects our well being. So if you put all of yourself and all of your senses and your energy, around grief and death, that is what will be running through your system all of the time. Mm. And that isn't really a way of living. It's not that you can cut off grief or cut off the pain that you're feeling, but you need to allow yourselves opportunities to both live and love and engage in your life, knowing that you love and miss your mum, mm. as well as times to move towards your mum and remember her and feel the pain of missing her and connect with her. Mm. But it's a movement between the two that is vital. And in some way, complicated grief is when you don't move, is when you stay in one position mm. and you stay with the grief and you hold on to it um, kind of quite rigidly and determinedly. And, and that, of course, then has quite bad outcomes because it affects everything. You know, you then push people away, you feel angry against the world, um, and then that is compounding. I know we've had the conversation with listeners before about taking a break from your grief, and some of them have contacted us to say, I don't know how, I don't know how to do that. How, what do you mean, take a break from my grief? But it's like you said there, it's so important just to allow yourself to live, to love, to like engage in play and just 
not be consumed by what happened, the story, thinking about grief, talking about grief, just, you know. I think the first step is, is the permission to yourself. Mm. Like I am allowed to, to put this down, to put it in a very precious, safe place that I know I'll come back to. Um, and start by habits, you know, you, you know, fake it till you make it. So choose to see a friend, to go for a walk, to have a nice drink in Australia, presumably be in the sun, you can go to a beach or, you know, enjoy going outside, intentionally do things that you know give you joy. It may be listening to a piece of music, some music makes you cry, but other music makes you dance. So even when you're out of the habit of it and it feels weird and odd, by practicing it, you build up the neural networks that allow you to have pleasure through repetition, you know, like learning an instrument, we can learn, we can teach our, our mind and our bodies that are completely interconnected to allow ourselves to um, feel connected to ourselves and connected to others and feel the warmth and the love of that. And then we can enjoy looking at a blue sky. We can enjoy a delicious cup of coffee or a drink or, and so, which isn't veiled by our grief all the time. That's really helpful that we kind of put our loved ones away in a box while we focus on doing something else. And the more we keep doing that, hopefully the easier it will get. It is interesting though, like before somebody- I think a box sounds too like a coffin. <laughs> oh, okay. We don't put them in a box. <laughs> I, I, You know, the- the thing that we know with with grief that you two you know have clearly expressed expressed since your mother mothers have died is that the love never dies mm. you know you will love your mum until your last breath mm-hmm. so it's finding ways to remember her and connect to her through touchstones of memory Mm. So it may be by doing this podcast, it may be by lighting a candle, by her photograph, it may be by talking to a friend about her, it may be writing her a postcard or wearing something of hers. So that you can connect and love her when you choose. You know, in the past it was very much, and maybe in Australia, some of it is still forget and move on. What you don't talk about isn't going to hurt you. And what we know is that the reverse is true. It's by remembering and connecting to the person that has died Mm. and finding ways of adapting and facing the reality of their physical death, that they're no longer physically present, while incorporating the love for them and finding ways of expressing that love for them and feeling connected to them. So you could ask your mum, shall I go and buy this for my child for Christmas and you'd be able to give yourself the answer Mm. you know because you know her she's in you she's part of you and that that continuing conversation is is how we learn to live and love again through you know very traumatic and terrible loss it's the continuing bonds isn't it and we love that theory that's class and silverman yeah yeah we have a question from a listener here julia around the topic of living losses again. One listener has reached out to say that after they experienced the death of a loved one, they then had a relationship breakdown and also a change in their financial circumstances. And that for them, the grief and the loss just feels like it's constantly being compounded. 
how would you suggest if this is something that's happening how can we cope with you know what feels like an overwhelming amount of loss I mean I think it it is <clears throat> sorry that their loss is compounded by the multiple losses following the death and a new loss will always take you back to the same place because it's physiologically in our bodies so they'll feel the loss through the death of the person that they loved and then that's um intensified by the breakup of the partnership and then probably the breakup of the partnership is what brought the financial um, sort of worsening situation and so in some ways I think part of it is to recognize and name the reality this isn't me not coping or me kind of not doing it okay this is multiple losses that have all happened at the same time and that is overwhelming mm. And we aren't kind of robots. We can't kind of cut ourselves out and focus on one thing and then another. But I think one of the images um, that I think is helpful is with so much loss, if you kind of put it in a room, it's like a room full of losses and fears and things that it's too much and you kind mm -hmm. of turn away from. But if even just for a short time every day, you can take one aspect of it out and focus on that and name it, name what you feel, name why it matters to you, name what it means to you, name what hurts about the loss of it, um, and then do something that intentionally kind of soothes and warms you. That is doing what, you know, when I talked about those little pieces of the jigsaw, that is like doing that little piece of the jigsaw. And if you do that over time, the, you do actually the, the intensity of what you're feeling does begin to reduce, but you have to do the other behaviors as well. So, you know, my eight pillars of strength where I talk about, you know, what you, uh, your attitudes you have, the way you think and what you actually do, the structure that you have, taking exercise, all of those things are really important to give you the resilience and robustness to manage these multiple ways of loss as they come through your system. Because, and because, we, we need things that can hold us together when the event of the loss has tipped us over. Mm -hmm. And we can choose these things. So, I mean, taking exercise, I say it the whole time, it bore everybody stupid with it, <laughs> but it lowers your, I was going to say cholesterol, it lowers your <laughs> cortisol, <laughs> probably <laughs> your cholesterol. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Buy one, get one free. But it lowers your cortisol and increases your um, dopamine and serotonin, the kind of feel-good chemicals, and you kind of feel that relief. Mm. And then you can begin to kind of feel a bit calmer and you think a bit clearer. You know, when you're really in intense grief, your whole autonomic nervous system is on fire. It's like your amygdala is burning and you can't think. You're just in this panicked, intense place. So doing physical things that help lower, bring down the gears of your fear, enable you to feel safe in your mind, safe in your body, safe in your home. And when you feel safe, you feel connected. And then you can begin to kind of process in a way that when you're on high alert, that you can't. Something that I've heard you say in conversation before, Julia, which I thought was really interesting about living loss 
you know, the last two years, there's been so many changes for everyone on a global scale. But I think it can be be hard sometimes to pinpoint the living losses. Whereas when someone dies, you've said before, you can kind of pinpoint that loss in time. I think that's true. And I think also when we're quite rightly a very kind of aware of when we are more fortunate than other people who have much more maybe socioeconomic or different reasons to suffer, Mm. often we can use that to not legitimise our own experience. And I don't think that's helpful. You know, so people people tend to say, well, I'm so lucky, but... And I think it's helpful to recognise and be grateful for what you do have, you know, that you have a roof over your head, that maybe you didn't lose your, lose your job through the pandemic and that you have kind of security in, in many ways. But I think it's not but, I think it's and. I have, the, I have the good things and I really appreciate them. And I've had a really difficult time. I'm living in a global world of uncertainty where politics is kind of swirling and I don't really trust anybody where my sense of my own mortality feels really under threat from a a virus that I kind of thought was medieval and biblical and would never happen in my lifetime, Um, where human beings are no longer people I want to walk towards and hug, but vectors of disease that terrify me, that I, I can't plan. I can't plan my holiday. I can't plan having supper. You know, so many people have experienced the loss of being with their families Mm. at really pivotal times. Mm. And all of that is grief. You feel sadness. You feel rage. You feel stuck. You feel denial, bewilderment for all of those things. And you, it's important that we give ourselves permission and the legitimacy to have those feelings because then they can run through our body you know, like weather, and then we kind of feel robust again. But if we keep saying to ourselves, I mustn't, I mustn't make a fuss, I'm all right, I'm all right, and kind of white knuckle it, it really, it really compounds it, to use your word. I think sometimes we don't want to offload on people or, you know, put people sort of off by expressing how we really feel. But it's so important, isn't it, to just be like, I'm shit today, and <laughs> yeah. this is why. <laughs> Getting and I think better. the first person, you're getting, you, I mean, you two are probably really good at it and you're probably good yeah. at it with each other. But I think the first step is awareness. Mm. I think often people don't really kind of realise how awful they're feeling until they're really depressed. Yeah. You know, they've been so, you know, and there are so many anaesthetics, you know, being busy is an anaesthetic, all sorts of things that, you know, the kind of sp- speed of 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 um 21st century life and all of the distractions that we have can take us out of ourselves and out of our awareness of who we are and what we're feeling and then suddenly we'll crash so i mean i do think the first step is a really good one when you realize actually i feel really awful and then you can give yourself permission and then um saying it out loud or journaling it, doing morning pages or whatever you do. And then the biggest single thing that helps anybody from any loss is the love and connection of others. So when we experience a loss, whether it's from death or from a living loss, it is in the end the love of others that enable us to survive and even thrive. And that's one of the terrible things of the pandemic has been the isolation. Um, But I think even having contact, you know, virtually like we are today, 
is a million times better than nothing. It isn't the same as a really good hug, but it, it's it goes a long way. I mean, I think we're lucky that we've got we've got this. Connection is so important. And I've heard you say before that when you've experienced a loss, it's really important to give yourself little lifeboats. And I thought that was a really lovely way of yeah, expressing, giving yourself the little things that are going to comfort you and and help you throughout, you know, really difficult times. I really loved that. And also that they're little, you know, give yourself tiny lifeboats. I mean, for me, it's like a cup of coffee. I went on a bike this morning and I, then I look forward to my kind of breakfast and my cup of coffee. That is my treat. So that's a lovely kind of cycle before... I mean, a cycle as in a circle before I start before I start work and it sort of sets me up for the day. But also through the day, like give yourself five minute breaks to go outside, give yourself five minute breaks to do a little meditation, to look at photos of of people that make you smile and feel warm, to do any of the things that that give you that that warmth coming through your body. You go, ah. Um, that really helps and they have a multiplier effect so that even small things can have huge outcomes that's such great advice and another topic that comes up quite frequently in our Facebook support group Julia is the feeling of losing your identity after a big loss and the impact that grief could even have on your self-esteem and we know that's something that you touch on in grief works Um, how does our identity and our sense of self change during the process of grieving? And why do you, why do you think it, it does? Um, actually, the where I've written about it most, I wrote a whole section in this Two Shall Pass on identity. And what I came up with around identity is when you ask yourself the question, who am I? Mm. It's identity that we find our answers. And, of course, there are multiple um, you know, it could be your gender, your religion, your relationship status, your job title, um, whether you're a parent or a child or a sibling, you know, all those multiple identities. And at the heart of every one of those identities is two aspects, the need to love and belong for who you are in that full identity, but also to stand out and attract. And sometimes they can collide. And so when, for instance, our mother dies, the question is, am I still a daughter? Mm. Does my identity as a daughter, did that die with me? And so the task of grieving in the identity and relationship to your mum is recognizing and feeling the pain of the loss that she's not physically there to parent you anymore and allow that and feel that. And feel the sadness and the deep kind of loss of that and how far it goes. And also to recognize that you are always her daughter. Mm. That, you know, that that is part of who you are. And it's changed. It's been changed and reshaped by her death. But the fundamentals of it is that I'm a loved and loving daughter who's allowed to stand out and attract a mate, <laughs> um, is, is there. But it's the, it, it is a tough process. But the, the 
other side of it too is, and I think this happens more in relationship status when you have a partner that dies, but I think it can happen um, when you have a parent die, is that how people respond to you is different. So there is some awful kind of, I think it's probably primitive um, response that when someone has had a partner that's died, they feel not only do they no longer have, you know, the man or the woman that they love and that status, but they're treated differently. If they walk into a kind of room, they feel like they're not as important as they were when they were a couple. If they go and stay with a friend, somehow they're given the sort of shitty room in the back of the house rather than the room for a couple, or they end up peeling the potatoes when they used to be just sitting in the in the kitchen table. Do you know what I mean? So, That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. We, we've actually um, had listeners that have spoken about this before and reached out to say they, they feel that um, certain people now treat them like a bit more of a threat because they're newly single and there's this all of a sudden the dynamic has changed. So that's really interesting. It's both. They can be seen as a threat, but also they can be seen as less than. Mm. Yeah. Um, or both, which is really complicated. <laughs> <laughs> really harsh. Um, <laughs> really harsh. <laughs> when I was reading this too, she'll pass. There was a story about um, one of your patients called Robbie, whose wife died of a brain hemorrhage suddenly. And I, it really actually resonated with me because you were talking about how he worked and how it, it he was a teacher wasn't he yes headmaster work, yes yeah that's right and it gave him work gave him a break from the pain and it actually energized him and sustained him and built his self-esteem and that really resonated with me because I tend to throw myself into work and I, I thought it was an avoidance mechanism but reading his story, I kind of felt that actually, no, I think it's, it builds my self-esteem. It makes me feel really good. And as long as I do take breaks and I, you know, I know when to switch off, maybe my desire to work isn't an avoid, I'm not avoiding my grief, but actually I think it's something that sustains me and, and reading that story and which that that's why I love grief works and this too shall pass, you know, all the stories are so different, but you, you do, I have connected with stories that are very different to, to my own, like Robbie's. Um, but yeah, I, I, that really struck a chord with me. I, I completely agree. So, I mean, I, I always, not always, because people are sort of unique, but I suggest that the work is the place where you can find your power, that you can find your agency, where it's familiar, you're not in this alien planet of grief that you don't like and you don't want to be and you don't know yourself anymore. Going back to work, even if it's a job that you don't like very much, at least you know what you're doing and who you're with and it's familiar and there can be something really restorative in that. And also self-respect and, you know, structure really helps us. Grief is utterly chaotic. It's mm. utterly, you know, unpredictable. Structure is a friend that can hold us. And I think work is, can be that friend. Even, you know, I mean, you can't work at the same level or at the same kind of rate as you did when you're not grieving because a lot of your energy is used up with grieving, particularly in the first kind of months. Mm. But after a while, it's the place that you can, you know, this thing of loss and restoration, it's the place that you can go to restoration and kind of turn away, put 
the grief to one side and be active and get stuff done and feel productive and meet people and feel alive mm. and then go back and do the lost work. And I think we really need that. Mm. That's such an interesting perspective. And I, I always thought Sal's avoiding it. She's keeping herself super busy, but that's, yeah, it's really interesting to hear that perspective. And mm. we do sort of advocate for what we call having a grief sesh. So when we are like busy and working a lot of the time, we don't have a lot of time to focus on our own grief and we'll go away and we'll put on the music and we'll get out the memory box and all of those senses, things that, you know, evoke the senses and grieve. <laughs> and it's like, it is, it's setting aside that time to do that is really important when you are someone who likes to keep busy. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, I don't think balance really exists and busyness is an anesthetic and it can be an avoidant, but it sounds like you to have enough balance that you kind of put time aside and have your grief sesh and you can kind of recognize if you're overdoing it and then just, you know, time out, step back, pause, <laughs> regroup recognize what's going on and look at what maybe what you're avoiding what is it that's kind of driving me to finish this thing and get it done yesterday <laughs> I think from from doing all of this grief work that's how we've known how important it is to do that yes so otherwise I don't think we would have known what to do at all really <laughs> never face it <laughs> and you know although I'm giving myself credit I mean the title is really damn good grief works because it does work, but also it's work. You know, mm. people talk about time as the healer and over time, your grief does change. We are wired to adapt. It is a natural adaptive process, but we have to help it. We have to be active in our grieving process for it to do the work, to allow us to heal and grow through the grief and accommodate the enormity of the loss. And if we do nothing, it stays untouched inside us and does come and get us in all sorts of ways that do us harm. And will certainly come back and haunt us the next time we experience a loss, which we will, because, you know, loss is very much part of life. And on that um, point of it coming back to haunt us, you mentioned earlier when we were talking about that sort of suppressed grief and the suppressed anger that it can then go down, it can affect generations, which is really interesting. And I know that's kind of the topic of your next book is all about sort of family and connection. And there is um, an element that we're really interested in, a topic of um, transgenerational trauma that we've only really started exploring since our mums died. Um, but it's fascinating. So can you tell us, based on your research, Julia, what it is and how it can impact people? So there are, there are many ways of kind of cutting it. So some of it is behaviour and some of it is epigenetics. Mm -hmm. So an epigenetics is the kind of load of cortisol that is transferred from one generation to another. So the most well-known, for instance, is Holocaust survivors. So Holocaust survivors have a much higher um, levels of cortisol, much more responsive to fear and worry and anxiety when they've been studied. Rachel Yehuda is the great um, researcher in epigenetics. And, but even in Holland, where there was a famine, 
um, the next generation's response to food changed. And so because we are wired to adapt, you know, to, to survive, our wiring kind of does its best to protect us. So it passes down through the generations. And then the, the other side of it is more behavior. So we learn as babies and children about how to respond to life's events, the good things and the bad things from what we observe. We learn much more from what we see and what we experience than what we're told. So if we're brought up in a family like my family who never told any stories, who the whole kind of modus operandi was to be okay, um, not to show your feelings and just put on a good show, then, you know, I, that is what I learned and that's what I inherited. And my, my book is called um, Every Family Has a Story, How We Inherit Love and Loss. And my family was, you know, was a story of enormous trauma. Both my parents had experienced huge traumas, but they didn't tell stories. And so what goes unsaid and untold and unexperienced in one generation passes directly down to another generation until someone's prepared to feel the pain. And am I right in thinking that, was it your mother that had experienced like five or six losses before, well, in a, you know, before she was in her late 20s? Is that right? So by the time she was 25, her mother, her father, her sister and her brother had all died. Wow. So her mum died of cirrhosis, she was an alcoholic. Her father died of cancer, but they'd separated and divorced when my mum was a child. So that was a huge loss because it was a terrible stigma then. Mm. Um, my uncle was killed in Arnhem in the war and my aunt um, died of an asthma attack when she was cleaning the carpet. So, and she, by the time she was 25, she was an orphan. She had nobody left in the world. And my dad, his father died of a heart attack and his brother died um, in the dentist chair. And, you know, there were these black and white photographs of these people. Actually, I never saw my maternal grandfather until last year. I didn't know what he looked like, but I never knew any of the stories. They never talked about them ever. I knew vague things that mommy was more sporty than her sister and, uh, and that Tony, my uncle, was good at the piano, but I didn't wow. know how he died. I didn't know anything. None of us did. I mean. And imagine holding on to all of that and like it brings us back to the start of this conversation, like what that does to your body and your mind and your spirit like needs to, to come out, doesn't it? And what you do to block it, you know, how much energy that takes. So what isn't then being um, allowed within the, you know, the family system mm. because there's so much energy used to block the pain. It's, if you block the pain, you block the joy. Yeah. If, if someone's listening and they recognise this in their family, how can they sort of try and break the chains or kind of, you know, try and move through some of, some of this, I guess, lock, locked-in trauma? I mean, I think where they can is, you know, look up, look and look, do a genogram. There are these wonderful books that you can do. Um, that you can draw your family and you could look at patterns of broken relationships or addictions or suicides or babies that weren't acknowledged and look at what is going on in the family. Learn as much as you can from other relations or family members or friends of your family and get the more full the story is, the more you know. 
then you can begin to have a story for yourself. Mm. And, you know, the story we tell ourselves is the person we become. So, you know, once you know your full story, you can allow all of these different things, but also look at your patterns. Like what is your first default response when something bad happens? You know, think about that. Is it the most useful response? You can't not have that response, but maybe you need to add other ones in. And from your years of experience, if you could give one piece of advice to somebody grieving, what would it be? The million dollar question. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you've given us so many amazing pieces of advice, but give us one more. (laughs) I think in the end, love is strong medicine. That we, you know, love is the thing that allows us to survive. And it's both love in relation to ourselves, allow yourself to grieve and love the person that died and allow other people to love and love other people despite the death. Mm. And when we can allow love into our hearts despite the searing pain and find ways of expressing love despite the searing pain, we do heal. Before you go, some of our listeners will be aware of your wonderful app called Griefworks, but some of them might not. So can you tell us a little bit about the Griefworks app and what, where we can find it and what we can expect from it? So it came out earlier this year. It took two years to develop. And it's basically, it's on the app store. It's only for iPhones, but it will be available for Android early next year. And it's it's basically the closest thing to having therapy with me. So it's a 28 day course. Each course is 15 minutes where there's a wisdom that I kind of say about that is a very kind of important part of grief. And then with the wisdom is a practice. Um, And then it has tools. So it has like 30 tools of meditation, visualization, a hit class, yoga, um, a sleep um, story so that if you wake up four in the morning you've got access to something it's got a journal so you can journal what you're feeling so everything that you need to support you when you feel completely chaotic is in one place um, and it's not at all robotic because there's there's films there's my voice I do a lot of the I did a lot of the recording of the meditations and of uh, all the 28 practices so that, I mean, they, I would just suggest they go to the app store and see the reviews. The reviews are unbelievable. I mean, I hoped it would work, mm. but people have been kind of over the moon about it. Somebody, a man said, I've been struggling with my grief for three years. And after 10 days, I felt changed by your app. Well, how wonderful um, is that? Wow. That's amazing. And other people have said, you know, I feel like Julia is my friend. She's in my pocket. I can use her whenever <laughs> I need her. On tap. That sounds weird. It Julia sounds on weird. tap. <laughs> it does sound both narcissistic and weird. Me saying that. <laughs> Not at but all. I think, incredible. <laughs> but what I think they mean is, I have something that I trust that can help me. Yeah. And I can use it, and it works. And so it doesn't matter that it's me or whatever, but it's something that they've that they've got. And that, you know, that really moves me. I find it incredibly touching. We've used the app and can vouch that it's absolutely brilliant. And I think if you said to anyone that's grieving, I've got Julia Samuel in my pocket, they'd be like, <laughs> you know, sign me up. <laughs> they'd love it. They'd be like, yeah, worth every penny. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think the reverse. But I think no. I think it's the it's the connection. I think the thing that matters is that you don't want if grief is so lonely and isolating and you feel so bloody bonkers mm. that if you can go to something in your pocket, you don't have to ring a friend or anybody else that you go, oh. Oh, oh, that's what I'm feeling. Oh, it's normal. Oh, okay. And this yeah. is what I can do. And this is how I can help myself. And it just, it just brings you down and takes you out of the spiral of like, I am going mad here. Because mm, that's the thing you can think, is this normal? Like the way that I'm feeling, what I'm thinking and just having that reassurance is so important. And thank you for everything that you do, all of the books that you've, you know, written, your app, just everything that you do. And we'll link to everything in our show notes. And Julia, this has been so wonderful. Thank you for your time. I know that a lot of our listeners are going to be so excited to listen to this conversation and you have not disappointed. It's been just a wonderful end to to the week. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure for me. It really has to meet you both. And you're doing really important work in this space. And um, I send my love to all your listeners. And um, I hope even if they find one thing helpful, that 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 works for them. What a brilliant woman. And I absolutely love her sense of humor so much. I'm going to go and put me grief in a box for a bit, shall I? (laughs) (laughs) Pop it in a box, mate. Yeah. Um, such an honor to talk to Julia and we know a lot of you guys are big fans of her so we hope you enjoyed this conversation and took as much away from it as we did Um, and don't forget if you haven't already joined our private grief support group on Facebook it's called Good Morning Grief Community it's a safe space to connect with others and just share what's going on in your grief until next time guys see you later 